Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, August 21st, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And good golly hog molly, I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're talking about the hog suckers of genus Hypentelia. Ooh. And our guest is a hog sucker fan and a native fish enthusiast, Corey Gevins. So warm welcome to you. Thank you. I was looking around online and they've got some really funny names that I noticed. I know Guy mentioned one in his intro, the Molly or Hog Molly. There's Boxhead, Stone Toter, Hammerhead Sucker. Pugamoo. <laughs> yeah. I love Pugamoo. Come on. It's the best. Yeah. What, why is it called Pugamoo? What does that mean? I don't know. I wish I wish I knew what region that came from. I love telling people what, you know, hey, what are you fishing for? Oh, I'm I'm just pugamooing today, you know. <laughs> I'd be like, what? Make That's it funny. into a verb. And why are yeah. they called a hog sucker? I got that question from one of my little fans who's six. Oh, I think it's the snout that, you know, they've got a they, when they stick it out, it looks like a like a pig snout. I think that's the main reason. Okay. Describing their behavior, you're talking about them rooting around, and that's a verb that I usually associate oh, yeah. with like pigs. So I kind of have always thought it was uh, related to that. That said, you know, hog sucker is in, in some ways kind of an unfortunate name, but uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I got yeah. my I got my hog sucker T-shirt on. Oh, you got oh, me man. heat. That's awesome. I love it. Okay, so how will I know if I have a hog sucker in my hand? I'm guessing. I'm going to be keying into the the business into this fish a little bit, but can you just describe what they look like for folks who haven't seen one? Yes, they're a very distinctive fish. It's a small species of sucker with a subterminal mouth. The biggest thing that you'll notice about them is the head is large, it's square, it's the eyes are sort of protruding. It's got a black ring around the mouth. Some of my friends have started calling them goth suckers because <laughs> it looks like they're wearing black lipstick. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So trying to popularize that is another slang. I like it. And uh, the lips are covered in tiny bumps called papillae. So it's a really distinctive fish. It's hard to confuse it with anything else. The body is like long and thin with um, sparkly and black patches. So it's it's very cryptic Mm -hmm. to blend in with the stream bottom. And it has these large, fleshy pectoral fins, which are low on the body and um, really big for the size of the fish. They look almost like little wings sticking out the side. The big boxy head and the concavity between the eyes is really prominent. And also that black ring around the mouth is really prominent in bigger individuals. But when they're smaller, they don't have that so much. It can be hard to distinguish between the small jump rocks and the small hog sucker. So one thing that's a really good key characteristic is on the caudal peduncle and onto the caudal fin, there's this white hourglass figure eight kind of shape that the hog suckers have and jump rocks will never have that. So that's a good key defining characteristic. That's a great point. I've only fished for the uh, jump rocks once and I had a great time doing that too, but they're very kind of similar fish. So I could see how you could get confused, especially with the smaller specimens. Yeah. I mean, once they get to this size, there's there's no mistake in a hog sucker. But when when they're smaller, it can be a little tricky. You mentioned their pectoral fins. And a lot of times those can tell us a bit about where the fish is found. So I'm curious if you had any thoughts on kind of how they're using those big fleshy fins. Oh, yeah. So this is a fish that's really adapted to swift water foraging and just holding in really fast, shallow, rocky water. 
they use those big fins to sort of crawl along the bottom. It ho- holds them down against the substrate and helps them move along the bottoms. Another note about those, it's really, you hold one out of the water, you can look at them, at least these are the ones that we have down in Georgia, both the northern and the Alabama, and they're like a bright orange and you think that a bright orange fin would probably stand out, but these fish actually camouflage really well. And it, when, you, when you look in the stream on these sandy bottoms and these rocky bottoms, we got a lot of this mica, this, you know, that kind of shedding rock that in the it's sheets shiny. that's really reflective. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm pretty sure that, you know, I've talked with Michael Wolf. He's a big Nanfa guy about this, as well as other people who are fly fishermen who are trying to make flies that mimic these fish for bigger ones. And they're really keying in on those fins that kind of, look like that mica that's cool yeah yeah very cool well i'm excited to go see this fish out in the wild i've never seen one before in person you went to school at virginia tech how have you never seen a hog sucker i didn't see a hog sucker did you try i saw some of the other species you mentioned i go fishing but i wasn't catching (laughs) you probably you probably looked right at one didn't see it probably it was too camouflaged Yep. There have been plenty of times when I've been there like working a pool for minnows or darters or something else. And I'll have been there for 10, 15 minutes and then realize there's been a hog sucker there the whole time that I've just been ignoring because I think it's like shadows and rocks. They got those black saddles on them. And yeah, so it really messes with your head between those fins and those saddles and the rocks and just shadows and, shadows, and shines. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to see them. Yeah, it actually breaks it. It makes it look like it's two objects with a shadow in between them, kind of. It's crazy. They're hard to see. Yeah, it reminds me in many respects of, you know, you got these reef fish where their whole camouflage is more disruptive than it is trying to blend in with anything. So, yeah. you know, you'll see like those trigger fish and stuff. You're like, well, how does that help them hide? They're so colorful. <laughs> it's really, it just makes it look not like a fish. And that's in a lot of ways kind of what this is doing, but in a, a, a brown color palette of a stream bottom. Yeah. yeah and you got a lot of it is from above too. I think the main predator on hog suckers are predatory birds like ospreys and things like that. So when you look directly down at them, they're almost impossible to see. Yeah. It's hard to appreciate them if you can't see them. At least, I mean, I wasn't familiar like I'm in Alaska now for a number of years and it's just like, yeah, they're, that camouflage really does fish a little bit of a, a disservice with the public who's not like a hardcore angling public because they are very hard to just see by design. Yeah. Um, Whereas in Alaska, you look in the river and the fish are often like bright red. red. <laughs> yep. yep. They kind of remind me, have you ever seen those antelope, the saiga antelope with the giant snouts? They look oh, really yeah. kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I was looking at pictures online and man, they're like, they're doppelganger. So yeah. really, really kind of funny looking fish, but really neat. Yeah. They have that sort of squared off snout that sort of bends over and blends into the little tube-like mouth. What is their mouth going to be doing when they're holding along the bottom? It's very distinctive, like you said, but like, what are they doing with that mouth? Well, they're able to produce suction. So being a, you know, a bottom feeder, a benthic foraging animal, they use it to just suck little insects, crustaceans, invertebrates of different kinds off of the rocks. And interestingly, they're one of the few fishes that actually manipulate the stream bottom by turning over rocks or moving them around, pushing them with their head, flipping them over. And so while they're feeding on the same kind of things that like a trout or a bass might feed on, they're actually not feeding in the water column. They're turning over rocks and feeding on hidden animals that are underneath the rocks. 
And I think too, they can actually suck the little insects out of the crevices and cracks with the uh, suction that they produce with their little <laughs> little tube mouth. It's interesting. They're a frequent sight when I'm snorkeling in these rivers. And as opposed to a lot of fish that, you know, they'll find a bit of prey and then they'll go and they'll have their feeding behavior. They'll scarf it down. Seems like the hog suckers are just always kind of working a little bit as they go up. Oh, yeah. As an avid fly fisher, too, there's a phenomenon called the hog sucker hatch that you can look for. Like if you see a feeding hog sucker, oftentimes you can look just downstream from them, like 5, 10, 15 feet, and there will be other fish that are sort of feeding on the leftovers because as the hog suckers root around on the bottom and flip rocks over, a lot of these little crustacean scuds, things like that, will get dislodged. And so fish like, you know, creek chubs and trout and other species will feed on whatever the hog suckers churning up. And it's something you can look for in the stream to uh, pick up more fish. That's awesome. They're kind of helpful to those other fish. That's neat. I like that term, that hog sucker hatch. That's a cool one. I'm going to use that. Awesome. <laughs> I'll credit you, Corey. Gotcha. They also sort of turn over the substrate, which is, you know, in some of the more impaired waters, the rocks and gravel gets sort of, in, they call it substrate embeddedness, I believe, where it it's no longer biologically productive if it's buried in sand. And there's a lot of erosion on some of our, especially in the agricultural regions. But the hog suckers will flip those rocks over and that helps keep it aerated and keep the substrate productive. That probably helps the other fish too that can't do that with their mouths, like some of the smaller fish, I would guess. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like darters need those little rock openings to spawn in. So, I mean, I think they're almost entirely in, in some of these impaired waters that you wouldn't see darters if you didn't have mm -hmm. hog suckers turning over the rocks like that. Yeah. Yeah. The comus chubs, they need the rocks yes. like that in order to build their nests. So it's all kind mm -hmm. of built together. Yeah. Yeah. And diversity is stability and productivity in a lot of these aquatic ecosystems. So I think it's important to recognize that, you know, they're there, they're supposed to be there, really important for the whole, you know, the whole stream ecosystem. That's cool. Catastomids, they're a really neat kind of group of fish. They're mostly exclusive to North America, and this includes your hogsuckers, your buffalo, red horses, those types of fish. How do these guys kind of fit in amongst the other cool native suckers in terms of where they are on that family tree, if you know? Well, hypentelium is its own genus, and I don't know if it's a sister clade to the red horses, but they seem to have some affinity for the red horses, but they are their own thing. And, and there's three, I believe, just the Roanoke, the Alabama, and the northern hogsucker. And I've, I've only encountered the northern hogsuckers. You're Midwest, like, are you Minnesota or Wisconsin? Yeah, or? I'm up in Minnesota. So I caught my first hog sucker on the uh, St. Croix Wild and Scenic River right between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Okay. So nice. that's my stomping grounds. That's kind of towards the northern end of their range, right? Or how far north do they get? Yeah, that is. I think that's almost at the end of their range. You know, by Lake Erie, there's a small amount of uh, Canada that they occur in. But yeah, that St. Croix River is about as far north as they get. Nice. Guy, which species have you caught of those three? I've caught northern and Alabama. I've been briefly in the watershed where you can find the Roanoke. <laughs> that one's a tough one. That's only in like the Dan and upper Roanoke rivers there in Virginia, North Carolina. 
My mom's actually on a flight to Roanoke as we speak, and I told her to go look for some Roanoke hogsuckers for me. I don't she know catch if one. she'll be able to. I told her to go over to White Sulphur Springs Hatchery, too, but I again, nice. I don't think that uh, she's going to get to do that. She's a busy woman. <laughs> Hi, guys, Mom. That's funny. Um, I'd be curious how you're catching them, given their feeding ecology and how they're rooting around kind of bottom-oriented. How are you targeting are there any specific times of year or just general tips yeah i don't know that there's a specific time of year but boy is there a specific habitat one of the reasons people don't encounter them very often is anglers in general typically don't fish like fast shallow rocky water Mm -hmm. it's a very uh difficult sort of environment but you know in a bigger river you would fish you know a bait like a worm or a piece of shrimp on the bottom in fast rocky water but in a small stream you'll often fish them by sight so you can wade around and look for them. And while they're hard to spot, if you have a clear eye, you can you can see them sometimes and then you can present a bait to them by sight, which is okay. a lot of fun. Yeah. I read this on roughfish.com. Give roughfish a shout out. But I've noticed it myself too that, you know, we talked a little bit about their camouflage. You can really get pretty close to these fish oftentimes. They'll just kind of hold still. So when you talk about sight fishing, they're not really apt to get spooked and run off like you can get within a rod's length of them often oh yes yeah they're very i wouldn't call it passive but i think they're very confident in their camouflage so Mm. if you're approaching one they are just well my best survival tactic is to just remain unseen and still here i don't know if other people have noticed this but me and a few of my fellow hog sucker fishing minions Mm -hmm. they're very also very passive in the hand i mean when they're fighting they're very you know, strong fighting fish for their size. But once you have them in your hand, they they also just tend to lay still. So I noticed some of the guys like to balance the hog sucker on their fingertips for their like pictures. And the fish doesn't tend to flop around very much. They're very photogenic. Yes, they're extremely photogenic. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Some fish you can't get a picture of like an eel. If you catch an eel, they like wrap around yeah. your rod and your hand. But these guys, yeah, I found some really nice pictures online and they're awesome. Yep. That's super cool. Yeah, I mean, how many people are fishing the hogsuckers? I know that they're kind of maybe a little underappreciated, but just have you come across many other fisher folks? Yeah, there's a lot of people that want to get them for um, life listing purposes, mm-hmm. you know, people that just are obsessed with catching every type of fish. But there is a big uh, spearfishing group in Missouri to the point where they had to institute strict limits on hogsuckers in the uh, Missouri Ozarks in the mm-hmm. current river because they're very popular food fish down there okay they do have a a strong following for people who harvest them for food but i think they're kind of adorable so i usually let them go (laughs) i want to follow up a little bit more about that gigging down in missouri if we can dig into that a little bit because that's something that we haven't really talked about much you're talking about these fish are in these really shallow habitats so are people do they have like a personal light on them because i think they're doing this at night yeah do they have a boat that can get up into these really shallows or are they all on foot how are they doing that i think they do it from a from a shallow draft boat at night they're just sort of pulling or maybe slowly paddling a small boat through the shallows that's interesting and i don't know that they're in the fast water and i haven't honestly fished for them at night very much so i don't know that much about their nocturnal behavior but it could be that they they retreat to some more still type water during the night okay okay and when you're fishing for them like hook and line i assume that you're probably bait fishing for them that's usually how i have to go about it can you feel them manipulating the bait? You mentioned sight fishing. Are you actually watching for the bite too? Yeah. If, if you're sight fishing, 
typically when they shoot that little sucker mouth out, you can see mm-hmm. that. And that's a dead giveaway that they've got the bait oh, in their mouth. that's cool. Yeah. It's like a little wink of <laughs> motion there at the head end of the fish. So if you're just fishing them and you can't see the fish, like the water is too deep or the surface is too riffly and broken, they are very light biting. So you need a pretty sensitive rod tip and you have to pay mm-hmm. very close attention to the tip of the rod to see the bite. It's easy to miss. In terms of appreciating kind of these underappreciated native fish, I'm just kind of curious if you've seen any perceptions where you are with, you know, these types of suckers, the native suckers versus some of the non-native fish and just kind of what your mission or thought is about kind of building appreciation for these types of fish. They're really only underappreciated by certain cultures. You know, obviously the Native Americans have appreciated these fish since time immemorial. You know, the up here in uh, Minnesota, we have the uh, month of February called Namabinegize, which is the sucker fish moon, you know, yep. which is a time of year when the suckers are beginning to stage for spawning. And the native people always harvested them at that time and mm-hmm. considered it a gift. When the Europeans came here, they kind of harvested everything. But at some point in time, we divided the fish into game and rough fish. And yep. the game fish are things like walleye, which is identical to the European zander. The trout and the salmon are all identical to the European trout and salmon. The pike is the same as the pike in Europe. The bass are all the same. They look very similar to the unrelated but very similar looking European bass. And that's why they mm. were named that. So I think a lot of it is just, you know. Familiarity. People, Yeah, familiarity. Bias. So yeah. Europeans want to eat European fish and these other fish are unfamiliar and strange and different. So that's kind of the, I think the impetus for this division, but you know, and it's always been a, something that like minority groups and people that are um, less up the, the socioeconomic scale have always used as a great resource and they're Mm -hmm. a fun resource too. And it's also a regional or cultural thing, you know, like up here in Minnesota, People have, at least for the last 50 years or so, considered freshwater drum uh, a, you know, a, a quote-unquote trash fish. But in Louisiana, it's always been a very highly esteemed fish. So it's a very regional thing. And I think as we're kind of not globalizing, but more, um, you know, we've got communication, we've got people, anglers of different life histories, different backgrounds, talking to each other online and sharing their stories People all over are beginning to appreciate, you know, the great resource that we have in these native fish. And honestly, with the amount of, you know, popularity of the angling sport, I think it's about time people started appreciating these because there's a lot of competition out there. And some of these fish are available really close to your home. They're very, you know, common and uh, they can provide a lot of sport and food, you know, for people who are willing to be a little bit open-minded. Yep. And they are very neat. I mean, if you just kind of look and we're digging into what they look like and their habits, I mean, they really are a neat type of fish and each fish has like its very specific kind of niche and just interesting features. So it's, it's good to dig in and get to know all of them. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, and, and learning about them and their lives and how they make a living is really, it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, it's a lifelong pursuit. A lot of people, I, I hear their issue with these fish. You know, we talked about this quite a bit on the common carp episode that we just did. The intramuscular bones are kind of a put off to people in the modern Western world. But I was reading somewhere that if you score the fillets to allow the heat and the oil and whatever you're cooking in to kind of get in there, that can help kind of cook the bones. Do you have any experience with that? Oh, yeah. I just started scoring 
the fillet, like keeping the fillet whole and then scoring it and frying it to make a scored fish. And I just started that two years ago. I have an annual sucker fry at oh, my, okay. you know, on the root river every spring. And up until that, this time, we'd mainly just used a meat grinder and ground the fish to chop up the bones into little tiny bits and then made them into essentially a crab cake. And it's really delicious. People love it. We put jalapeno peppers in some of them. Ooh. But then a couple of years ago, we sort of started to branch out because people just kept going on and on about how good they were as a scored and fried whole. And I did that for the first time and I was hooked. It's really good. Does it work? Yeah. Oh, it works. It works great. Huh. It, it works better than you imagine, really. And all you do is you fillet the fish, take out the rib bones, scale it, and then you just cut it from the flesh side down to the skin once every quarter inch or so down the length of the fillet and bread it with a little bit of breading of some kind and fry it in hot oil. You will not notice any bones at all. It's delicious. Really? Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll have to try that. You, you said throw some breading on there. stuff. So do you put any sort of seasoning or any spices in there or anything? I like a little bit of Old Bay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not a lot more than that. It's really, you know, sweet, white, flaky fish. So it doesn't need a lot. You can only dip them in some tartar sauce or something. I always like to do that. Who's this sucker fry for? What's this annual event? Is this just a private thing? or Yeah, is this- kind of, I mean, it, there's about 50 people now, which is about all the little campground can handle. <laughs> so, yeah, we've been doing it for, I think, 20 years now. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, we fry up suckers on the river and have a little species derby, which is uh, we see who can catch the most species in three hours, which is a okay. challenge. Nice. It's a challenge. It's an interesting type of competition where, you know, it doesn't matter what you catch or how big it is. It matters what diversity of fish you can catch in a photograph during that three hour period. What's the most that somebody's caught? I think someone got seven one time. Quite a bit. That's that's a lot. It's like a bio blitz. Yeah. And it depends on the year. You know, some years I think people have one with three. Mm. And what kind of suckers are you frying up? It's red horse, white suckers. Very rarely a hog sucker. Um, silver, shorthead, and golden red horse are the three. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. It's a great counter argument for the, well, you can't eat them, so what good are they sort of argument. Yep. I mean, every fish has its ecological services it provides. Like I was talking about how, you know, hog suckers provide food for other fish and increase the productivity mm-hmm. of the stream. But just being able to say, hey, these are good food for humans is a great way to just demonstrate that they have value. Yep. Yeah. So your brother is Drew, right? Yes, Drew. Yeah. You already had him on. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering (laughs) if you guys compete at all with your fishing list or if like one of you is like a bigger fan of certain fish or just kind of what's going on there. Yeah. So I think I don't. Let me think of what year. I caught my first hog sucker. This was a competition between us for like many years, like maybe okay. a decade where I caught a hog sucker and he hadn't caught one and oh. we traveled everywhere. I just, I still have, I remember the day when we were wading the Red Cedar River in Wisconsin and he caught this fish and it immediately was a big hog sucker. It would tell. It, it sort of splashed on the surface and he had this panic in his voice like, it's a hog Sucker. <laughs> uh, he had considered himself cursed for. So he uh, caught. He landed it. Yeah, he landed it and That's got good. a picture of it with a huge smile on his face because he had caught up to me. 
I'm so lucky that I managed to get this one. I thought I was snagged. I was fishing for white suckers, just trying to catch them on the fly. It was sort of tough. I was nymphing with like a gold ribbed hare's ear or something sort of just buggy looking. And so I went upstream into sort of some of the shallower water. And my indicator was like bobbing down for probably a good 10 seconds. I'm like, I swear, I thought I was stuck. And then all of a sudden, oh no, that's a fish. And I'm up 10 feet on a bank. I have to jump down to kind of get down and grab that fish. Yeah. And, but like you're saying, kind of your story with Drew, like once you see it rolling up, it's obvious it's not a catastomus. It's, yeah, it's very yeah. clear what it is. And so, yeah. That's so cool. I actually caught my first one at night. I was fishing for catfish or something and, and just reeled in this tiny fish that it was one of those things too, where I had read about it in the, you know, I, I field guides. The old ones, I think for the hog sucker just had, a sort of text description that was really confusing. Like <laughs> if you didn't, it, there, I'd never seen a picture of one, but then when, once I had reeled this one in, I thought, oh, that's what they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Got a, yeah. Discovering that fish kind of sent me down on the road to being a native fish enthusiast. and a Oh, that's cool. Sucker that's awesome. angler. Your, your gateway fish. Yes, cool. gateway fish. Exactly. <laughs> Who, who's a better fisherman? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I gotta. I'd have to pick Drew. He's better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How many fish are on your life list? Oh boy, um, I have 137 species, and that includes saltwater. Okay. okay. Only large species. I don't track minnows. Yeah. So that's 137 freshwater. I have 88. How do hog suckers stack up for you in terms of enjoyment of fishing, or just likability with some of the other species on your list? I think one of the things is I love where they live. You know, there's a lot of these warm water, small, rocky streams where you can go and find hog suckers and no one else is ever there. There's not a, you know, a trout population for anglers. So you end up in these just beautiful little streams, no one else around where yeah, you cool. can enjoy a very like kind of intimate mini golf style fishing experience. Mm -hmm. You know, where it's very visual, it's very satisfying, and you're kind of, you're, you know, interacting with the ecosystem. I think a lot of modern angling has become really, you're like interacting with the environment through this mediated electronic or mechanical interface. Like, I know if people are out walleye fishing, they'll be staring at a screen, sitting in a comfy chair, you mm. know, with carpet under their feet, and that's <laughs> a fishing experience. Whereas hog sucker fishing, in addition to just interacting with a really cool animal you're also you know you're watching the birds you're feeling the water against your legs you're seeing the sunlight glinting off the little sparkly scales you know on the back of the fish as you go for it it it's a very interactive and sort of immersive nature yeah activity. yeah that sounds awesome you sold it really that well. is yeah thank you that's awesome <laughs> The hog sucker, I think everyone kind of, you mentioned that it's cute. I think whenever we're taking kids out to sample for the first time, whether they're young or college age, you know, everyone's always like when they get a big hog sucker, everyone gets really excited and, you know, people pass around. You mentioned them being passive. People will kiss it on the lips because they got those big lips. So I don't know. I think it's what it's, it's an easy fish to love. Absolutely. Really? I think if the hog sucker got to be bigger, it would be the best the coolest game fish in the world. I mean, if they got to like 10 pounds, it would be okay. lights lights out the hardest <laughs> fighting, coolest fish in the stream. Ah, oh yeah. That's cool. Very cool. 
Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.